you love your work? Do you think it's possible? Well, you're about to find out. It's time for 48 Days to the Work You Love with Dan Miller on the 48 Days Online Radio Show. Whether you need a professional tune-up or a work overhaul, this is the program for you. Now, here's your host, Dan Miller. Well, welcome to this edition of 48 Days Online Radio. Hey, we've got some great questions this week, as always. If you got a question, you can shoot one in. Just go to the 48days.com site, click on the podcast link. You'll see a couple different options there for shooting a question in. We'd welcome that as part of an upcoming show. Well, here we are, middle of January, already into a new year. The days are clicking by. I hope you've got your goals outlined. And I hope that you are not only a goal setter, but a goal achiever. You know, there's a big difference there. Heard an interview this week with Brian Tracy, I think it was, who talked about that distinction. A lot of people get to the point where they set goals, and I think that is wonderful. But setting and achieving are two different things. Reminds me of a book written a few years ago. It was like five frogs on a log. Well, the old joke is, you know, five frogs on a log, three of them decided to jump off. How many were left? Five. Deciding and doing are two different things. So you can decide, but if you don't carry through, it really is meaningless. If you set goals, but don't have a plan and are taking action to achieve them, it really didn't make any difference in your life. So set goals, create a plan, act, achieve them. That's the plan. That's what we're going to do. I know you're on the path to do that. Here's some of the things we're going to be talking about today. Dan, do you have any suggestions of podcasts that are done by women? Legitimate question. I'm a little weak in that area. I'll share that with you. Dan, I want to do something that matters 50 hours a week. Any ideas? Gentleman shares what he's doing now. Thinks it doesn't matter as much. He wants to move into some new areas. We'll look at that. Dan, how do I develop a tutoring business when I don't have a teaching credential? How do I find rich people to hang around? These issues about being rich or being poor keep coming up. I've shared a little bit about that in the last couple weeks the distinctions between how rich people and poor people think. I've shared some of the things that Dave Ramsey talks about. If you do things that poor people do, you'll be poor. If you do things that rich people do, you'll be rich. That's a basic concept that Tony Robbins has used to create this amazingly big business that he has. It's that principle. Find people who are doing what you want to do, model what they're doing. So we'll talk about that. And in this question, Dan, as Christians, when our income increases dramatically, should our lifestyle scale with that increase? Now, we'll probably end on that one. I'll see if we get any farther than that, but I certainly want to get to that one, discuss that. As we have more income, should our lifestyle go up proportionately? Well, here's a quotation for the day. I want us to think about this. Eleanor Roosevelt said, do one thing every day that scares you. Now, when you think about that, this is not just some kind of childish thing where you stick your head in a dark closet. No, but if you're not scared at some point, you're probably not stretching enough. You've gotten too comfortable. You know, there's an old adage that nothing fails like success. And we see that a lot. I see people all the time who have a little bit of success as a coach, as an example. And so all of a sudden, they no longer need coaching of any kind. They're beyond that. Or speakers who, you know, I I spoke at a conference recently, and it was a two-day conference. 
and I was speaking the afternoon of the second day. I showed up the morning of the first day. The conference organizers were surprised. I sat in the back of the room the entire conference. I learned a ton. When it was my opportunity to speak, I walked up on stage, but by then I knew the audience. I knew the feel. I knew the questions that were being asked. So my speech was tailored much more to that audience. I mean, I like to do that. Most speakers, frankly, if they're due to go on at 2.30 on the second day, they show up at 2.25, walk on the stage, speak, and walk out. I have a problem with that. I, if I ever get to the point where I'm no longer teachable, no longer, longer learning, then uh, please uh, push me out of the way and start listening to somebody else. I want to continue learning. Well, in doing that, anytime we approach something new, we're probably going to have a little bit of that, geez, I'm scared. You ought to go back and grab the book Flinch. Julian Smith, you can still, I think you can still get it as a free download on Amazon. Just put it on your Kindle or Nook or iPad, whatever you have, and read it. It's a delightful little book, and it talks about that one experience just before we're going to do something that we haven't done before, and we flinch. He uses this as an example, and I've talked about it on here. If you've listened to me, you've heard me talk about getting in a cold shower. Turn the water on totally cold and get in. Well, just before you get in, that's that flinch. Ooh, jeez. Well, if you go ahead and do it, it's not going to kill you. Yeah, it's kind of a shock, but you get used to it really quickly, and you think, hey, I can do this. Well, a lot of things in life are like that. So you walk through that flinch to get to something that's going to take you to a higher level of success. Anyway... Remember that quotation, do something every day that scares you. I think that's a good point to remember. I I love it because I I see little kids, you know, that, gee, the thrill, they they scrunch up their face right before a balloon's going to pop or something's going to happen. They know it's going to be a new experience. And sometimes I see adults that just go beyond that. They don't have anything in their life that's a new, exciting, invigorating, or scary experience. And thus they live lives of mediocrity. So break out of that. One of the things that I was listening to the new success CD yesterday, which I highly recommend, of course, for everybody is the day that I get that the next morning. uh, That's what I pop in when I'm on the treadmill, the new success CD, but they were talking about multitasking. I wanted to add a couple points because I've talked about it so much on here. The idea that I, I think multitasking works against us. I know that when you're interrupted, it takes about 18 minutes to get back to the level of intensity, working on whatever you were working on previously. And a lot of people never go an 18 minute span in the course of a working day without being interrupted by a tweet, a text, phone call, email, somebody walking in your office. I mean, and if you never allow yourself those deep periods of uninterrupted focused work, probably working at a surface level. Well, they were talking about multitasking. And they said that research shows that your IQ drops 10 points when you're switching tasks. So if you're scanning email while you're on a conference call, those kind of things, your IQ drops 10 points. Now guess what else research shows? That your IQ drops five points if you're smoking marijuana. So if you think you're multitasking, you're really dumber than if you were stoned. Well, I know research says, statistics show, we can make them say anything you want. I don't know how to back back all that up, but it was a funny kind of anecdote to compare the two in that way. 
that sometimes when I think we're trying to be more productive by multitasking, we're kidding ourselves. Might as well go out back, smoke a weed, and have a, enjoy the afternoon, apparently. Well, let me go to the questions. This comes from Sweden. Frederick says, Hi, Dan and everybody on 48 Days. Thanks for all you do. I followed your book when I left the Army, went into middle-level corporate management. I see many career opportunities in the future and want to get a coach to help me navigate. Would you recommend a professional career coach or a senior executive to coach me? Yes, I would recommend both. I mean, coaching is a very individualized thing. Just because somebody has a particular title has little to do with their competence as a coach or what is really going to happen in the coaching process. So I would recommend that you clarify what you're looking for, Frederick, then interview three career coaches and interview three senior executives. Decide who you want to work with. You want to work with somebody you know, like, and trust. That's what you ought to be looking for. And that could come from a businessman. It could come from a coach. It could come from a friend. And, and ideally, it can come from all of those. And the Bible says there's safety in a multitude of counselors. I really believe that. You know, I just engaged with a coach. Now, I've been coaching people for 25 years. So do I still get coached? Absolutely. And I would mistrust a coach who is no longer being coached by anybody. But one of the areas that I really wanted to expand and refine this year is my speaking. Now, I've been speaking for many years. I speak a lot and I speak at rotary clubs and churches and universities and corporate settings, conferences and things. But I've always been, frankly, sloppy about that part of my business. It's just kind of a side thing. Yeah, okay, if I can work it out, I'll be there you know, whatever, we'll work out the details. I want to be very intentional and strategic about that part of my business. So I looked for who I could find as the top of the game speaking coach. Now, I'm not talking about a speech coach to help me with controlling my breath and my diction and speaking from my diaphragm. I mean, I have a coach in that area as well, Dr. Ralph Hillman. He's an amazing guy. That's a speech coach. I'm talking about somebody to help me develop my speaking career. So I engage with Jane Atkinson. You can look her up. It's the wealthy speaker. I'm sure it's wealthyspeaker.com is her website, but that that's her positioning wealthy speaker coach. So I enrolled in a program, wealthy speaker university with Jane, but again, just what I quickly do anytime there's an area of expertise, something that I want to develop in my own life personally or professionally, I look for a coach and engage with somebody who seems to be the expert in that area. In this case, it was Jane. Question from Sandra in Coon Rapids, Minnesota. Thank you for all your inspiring insights. I'm currently self-employed, running a small but successful residential cleaning business. I would like to become a life relationship coach and eventually a speaker. I have 91 college credits from 30 years ago and only need about 37 more credits for a bachelor's degree. Do you think it's necessary to spend the time and money to finish a bachelor's degree to add to my credentials or would completing a quality coaching course be enough to give me credibility? Would a degree be an asset? I appreciate your input. Well, thanks for the question, Sandra. So do you need a degree to be a life relationship coach and speaker? No. However, would a degree be an asset? Yeah, absolutely. But you don't need to wait until you get a degree to start coaching. Now, it may sound like I'm talking in circles here. 
The degree will be part of your personal development, but it'll have little to do with getting clients or having credibility with them or getting success with them. So see it as such. See it as part of your personal development. Now, should you go through a coaching course of some kind? Absolutely. Go through three or four. As I'm speaking right now, we're getting ready the next two days to have our Coaching with Excellence conference here at the Sanctuary in Franklin, Tennessee. So Coaching with Excellence, we got a full house coming. And these are people who want to be real coaches where they can get paid to be coaches. We have a wide variety of academic backgrounds in those people who just have life experience. There's one lady who's been a supervisor in a manufacturing environment for probably 20 years. She's been doing tons of training and coaching in that environment. It's a short step to position her as a coach in a broader sense. She doesn't have any kind of academic background, but she's got a real wealth of personal experience from which to draw. We've got people coming who have their PhDs, people who have background as counselors, teachers, pastors. So there's a wide variety. Some of them are business people, former CEOs. People bring their experience, then we position them to be a coach. So continue your personal development, whether that's formally in academics or whether it's in coaching programs, reading, and continue doing all that. You become better at coaching by doing it. So start where you are and know that you're going to refine your skills and be a much better coach five years from now, not just from books you read and studying that you did, but from being in the game and being active in the process of coaching. Harlena from Falls Church, Virginia says, I've started listening to podcasts in the morning. I found a few, The Voluntary Life, Beyond the To-Do List, Coach Radio, Entrepreneurship, or Entree Leadership, rather, Smart Passive Income, Freedom Radio. Do you have any suggestion of podcasts that are done by women? I'm just looking for diversity among podcasters. It could be that iTunes suggestion list is limited to just the most popular podcast. Maybe there aren't a lot of women doing podcasts in subjects that I find interesting. Well, great question. And I didn't have, when I saw your question, I didn't have a lot of suggestions. So I shot a note to Cliff Ravenscraft, my podcast answer man. You can find him at Podcast Answer Man, and he's my podcast guru. He's totally immersed in the whole world of podcasting. So I asked him. He gave me suggest- some suggestions. I'll give these to you, and then I'll put them in the, in the podcast notes as well. Connie and Sheila Talk. You can look that up, Connie and Sheila Talk. Now, their focus is real estate, but they talk about a whole lot more than that. I know Connie and Sheila, they cover a lot of areas about success in life and business. You could check them out. Busy Mom's Survival Guide with PJ Jonas. Successful Women Talk with Sheila Butler. Brand New One Love for Nurses podcast, the Daily Interaction podcast, the eventual millionaire, the eventual millionaire. You know, that's with a gal named Jamie. I'm doing an interview with her later today. The eventual millionaire. What she does is interview millionaires and then just pick their brains. What a great way to learn the principles yourself. And then, of course, she shares that with everybody, but you can check her out. So there are some you can check out. I'd also encourage you to check out John Dumas's Entrepreneur on Fire. Just go to Entrepreneur on Fire, scan through some of the many, many interviews that he's done. And a lot of people that he interviews are 
highly successful women, and I'm sure that a lot of those have podcasts that they do. I'm just not aware of a lot of them. Well, here's Jamie. Uh, Jamie says, Dan, thanks so much for your podcast. I'm a 36-year-old man married with four kids who has an e-commerce business selling photography equipment. A few years back, I started a journey for improving my life, my families, and in the process, I went back to school to be a Spanish teacher. Lost my job after I got one because of budget cuts. Paid off $87,000 as a family by doing Dave Ramsey's program. I love working from home, but now I'm not passionate about my business. In my free time, I'm part of a men's ministry where we do weekend events similar to John Eldridge's boot camp. I'm on fire for the first time in my life because of the path I I am, but but I'm constantly getting frustrated. I know there is more than this e-commerce business as far as income and passion. I feel that when I'm working on the ministry, I'm making a difference in the world When I'm working in my business, I feel like I'm working a job that I created. I long to influence people as some sort of life coach, financial business. How do I start monetizing this? My wife and I plan on doing the financial counseling program at Dave's. I want to do something that matters 50 hours a week. Any ideas? Well, yeah, I've got lots of ideas based on what you're, what you've shared here, Jamie. Sometimes I think we have an artificial dichotomy between doing work that we do that generates income and things that we're really passionate about, whether that's humanitarian, just sharing, giving ministry, however we frame that. And I think that sometimes we artificially force what we're doing in a ministry area, trying to make that our only sense of it, our only source of income when it really isn't reasonable to do so. So that's one answer. The other thing is, are there ways you can provide services in a reasonable way to people in a ministry format and get paid for it? Well, absolutely. I mean, one of the things that Rabbi Lappin talks about in his book, Thou Shall Prosper, is that when you get that Benjamin Franklin piece of paper in your hand, it's a certificate of appreciation. Somebody appreciated what you did enough to give that to you. So that means that if you go to a wonderful restaurant, you give them at the end of the meal a certificate of appreciation. If you go to a a weekend conference that really blesses you and lifts you up and encourages you and instructs you, giving the gift of appreciation would not be unreasonable at all. And being on the receiving end of that would not be unreasonable at all. And to do something where you know it's really going to benefit people, you want to be willing to allow them to bless you. And I had a a lesson one time when I was speaking early on years ago in a church and I, I was successful in business. Then I spoke at a church and the pastor came up afterward to hand me a check. And I said, Oh no, you don't need to do that. I said, I didn't do it for the money. He says, no, no, don't deprive us of the blessing of giving this to you. If you don't need it, that's fine. You pass it on, but don't deprive us of the blessing of just giving it to it to you. And it, it really was a, a healthy learning experience for me, maturing experience for me to have him frame it in that way. Now back to what you're doing as a ministry. 
I mean, do you think that what I do, I frame as a ministry? Well, sure. We do lots of things that help and encourage people. We've got these people coming here who want to be coaches. We're going to encourage them and show them how to do that. Is what I'm doing a ministry? Yeah, I hope so. Do I do it for free? No. These people pay $1,000 a piece to come for the two days that are here. They're thrilled about it. We have people that give us testimonial after testimonial about what happened when they're here. Let me give you another example. You want to work with men and you take them out on weekend things. What if you put together a site on the internet where you allowed people to just men to share their experiences? Callie, Jamie, I'm having a hard time really connecting with my son. What are the kind of things I could do with my son to really connect with him and help him grow as a man? And so you've got a site where you're offering tips Maybe you do teleseminars and you have, it costs people $10 a month to be part of that. And you've got 2,000 people, 2,000 guys. Now, this is not a big fee, obviously. They're paying $10 a month just to be part of this community that you've got. 2,000 is not a big number when you consider being online like that. Now, what have we just described there? We described something that's producing $20,000 a month. Can you still see it as a ministry where you're only helping people? Yes. We got to get out of this mentality that somehow if we're uh, doing things that matter, uh, we, we have to just sacrifice and live in poverty. Well, one of our other questions deals with that. Let me move on. Lucy from New York says, Dan, I love your podcast. Listen to it every week. I'm 50 years old, immigrated to the U.S. 20 years ago. I have a solid job and a very good income, but I dislike my job. My passion is for sewing, fashion, design, not as a hobby, but as an entrepreneur. We were taught these skills as girls in Europe, but in the U.S. it is almost non-existent. Do you think I could make a decent living with these skills? Sewing high-end clothes. It's a great deal of work. Would it be possible to make a profit? Who would pay for this? Could I teach classes? Most Americans seem to be interested in making quilts only. How about teaching how to repair or tailor clothing? Hmm. Any insights would be appreciated, Lucy. Well, yeah, I think that's a very legitimate craft, skill, talent to have that you can frame as a way to make income. When I was in graduate school, when I was getting my master's in clinical clinical psychology in Bowling Green, Kentucky, years ago, during those two and a half years we were there, Joanne, my wife, made clothes. She's a wonderful seamstress. She made clothes for, there's no other way to say it, for hard-to-fit women. So uh, chunky women, somebody five feet tall and three feet wide, I mean, she made clothes for those women. They absolutely loved her. It was very successful. This was years ago, but certainly the concept is valid today. So there are people who will pay for that kind of personal tailoring. Also, I mean, there's plenty of places around. I mean, I can drop off a pair of pants and say I need inch and a half taken off the legs. Boom, go back two days later and it's done. I mean, there are people that do that. Yeah, I think you can take that and turn it into a legitimate business where you're both doing it and teaching it just like many other skills. This comes from Elizabeth from Oceanside, California. Dan, how do I develop a tutoring business reading for young and old where the expectation of the client is that I have a teaching credential? I don't have one, much less a college degree, yet I use a reading program that is highly successful. It's thorough and typically doesn't require a great deal of effort and time. I speak from experience as I've already used this both on a volunteer basis and for pay. Is this 
an avenue I should pursue or are there careers that are simply not attainable due to lack of credentials versus having the knowledge and skill? Obviously, I went into cooking. No one would ask me whether I have a culinary degree, yet I'm stymied. Perhaps due to my own feelings of inadequacy, would you be so kind as to respond? Well, Elizabeth, I'd be delighted to respond. What you're talking about, can you be a tutor without a college degree? Absolutely. And you can be a tutor in most anything. I mean, if you have expertise in geology, biology, or mathematics, or accounting, I mean, you can be a, a tutor in those areas. You don't have to misrepresent, but I don't think it's true that most people are expecting a college degree. I am listening and I commented on here and I've had a lot of people respond back that they kind of picked it up and are doing it as well. But I got a Pimsleur course to learn Spanish. So in the mornings, the first thing I listen to on the treadmill is 30 minutes of Spanish. Uh, uh, it's really awakening a whole lot of old memories. I took Spanish in college and in high school, just haven't used it for years and years. But so it's kind of a refresher. And all of a sudden I'm speaking ahead of the instruction, but I love that. Now, my point is, the instructors on the audio, did I check to see that they have college degrees? Heavens no, I could care less. I don't know if they did or not, but it really makes no difference. I'm learning and learning very effectively. I love the way they're teaching. I think you can do the same. I think the obstacle is probably more between your own two ears than it is outside. So get past that. Present with confidence what it is that you do and let people know, yes, you are a tutor. This is what you do. Well, hey, just a reminder, you're listening to Dan Meller, 48 Days Online Radio. Every week, we kind of unpack questions, real life questions from you, the listeners. Things that will help all of us go to higher levels of success. Yes, we talk about work. But our work is just one tool for a successful life. So we go over into other areas as well. If you've got a question, go to the 48days.com website. Click on the podcast link. You can drop your question right in there. Hey, I appreciate, too, all the comments on the podcast site on my website. Now, that seemed to be fairly recent. All of a sudden, a lot of you are going there. I appreciate your comments there. Gives me a little more opportunity to interact with you. You can go there and see the show notes. Maybe that's it. I started putting up show notes of things I talk about here. I have links. That's the only way, the only place they are. I don't believe they do show up on iTunes and Stitcher and some of the others. So maybe that's it. But whatever, whatever the reason, I appreciate your comments there and feel free to continue that. Well, Pedro has a very lengthy question here. I'll kind of summarize it. He says that you've been a true inspiration over the years. It really helped me find direction, keep me motivated. Thanks for what you do. I'm at a bit of a crossroads feeling like I need to make a change, but I'm not sure. I hope you can help. I have a construction management degree from a great university, about 12 years construction management experience, eight of those being managing land development projects. I absolutely loved what I did for those eight years, but lost my job with the slowdown in the building industry. Um, my area of California is very slow growth. Building industry jobs are rare because of this. I proceeded to get my real estate broker license and have been doing that for the last three years. First, I didn't do much with my license since I was trying to keep cash flowing by doing handyman work. The second year, it took me about eight months to make my first sale and collected a commission of about 18000 My third year, 2012, I collected 60000 in commissions 
but had 40,000. Oh, okay. 40,000 after expenses. So apparently had 20,000 in expenses connected with being a real estate broker, not unreasonable and kept 40,000 by these numbers. It appears things are moving, but I'm afraid they're improving too slowly. I'm getting burned out. I've been working 60 to 70 hours a week. Now he goes through, he's not a hardcore salesperson, but he, he provides good customer service with honesty, integrity, good communication. On one hand, Pedro says, I don't want to give up, but I know something isn't right. With my background, expertise, work ethic, and customer service, I should be doing better. And he talks about he's not in a position to do investments. He'd like to do that. Any suggestions? Yeah. When, when we talk about selling, and you are, I mean, as a real estate broker, you're selling. You have to make sure that the business model is a good fit for the way you sell best. Now, we talk in here about different personality styles. So somebody who's a high D driving, dominant, opinionated, hardcore, in your face, that kind of person. I mean, that's a high D. Somebody who's a high I is very influencing. They're very gregarious, social, talk a lot, easy to meet with other people. And somebody who's a high S, very steady, loyal, dependable, good listener, brave and true, those kind of things. Somebody who's a high C is very analytical, detailed, kind of behind the scenes. All right. Now with those, if you are a high D, so you're out there hard driving, booming to people's face. I mean, those kind of people do really well in real estate sales. I mean, that's the kind of interaction that it is. You don't see people over a long period of time. You see them a couple of times, show them the properties. What are you looking for? Does this meet your needs and close the deal? If you're not that kind of person, if you're somebody now, let me just kind of move to some broad generalizations here, Pedro, because you describe yourself as not a hard seller. You are good at providing customer service, honesty, integrity, good communication. So that would be more like the S characteristics as I just framed the disc personality styles. If you're that, you may struggle and continue to struggle in real estate. You may take 40 people out this month to see properties and only close two. That's not a good closing ratio. And you, and you may feel like you really are giving them great service, but closing sales is more than just listening and being a nice person. You learn how to close sales and how to do that effectively. And frankly, there's a whole lot of people in real estate who have real estate licenses who are what I call professional visitors. They're not really salespeople. They're professional visitors. So they go around. They like what they do. They talk to nice people, but they're closing one or two deals a month. And you're going to starve to death doing that. So you have to either learn how to close sales more effectively or get in a line of business that would be more like what you're doing. Now, let me give you an example. If you are kind, compassionate, courteous, good listener, understanding, loyal, brave, and true, you could be selling MRI machines. Now, here's how that selling works. It's a high ticket item. You go and meet with the purchasing agent or the chief financial officer of a hospital, you get to know their business, you do a detailed proposal, they look at it, take six months and make a million dollar decision. You may be excellent at doing that kind of selling as opposed to real estate where you need to be more direct, short to the point, close the deal, get the money and go on to the next one. This is not a good or bad, right or wrong. It's a matter of finding the right fit. So make sure the selling model fits you. Learn to sell well. 
mean, don't just think that selling is something you either are born with or that that's ridiculous. You aren't born a salesman any more than you're born a brain surgeon. You learn how to do it well. So if you want to learn, read things like secrets of closing the sale, anything by Tommy Hopkins, Brian Tracy, the psychology of selling uh, Robin Sharma, the leader who had no title. I mean, learn, go to sales conferences, read, study, learn how to sell more effectively. Well, Mike from Ottawa says, um, Dan, enjoy the podcast question. Q and a format really seems to suit you. What advice can you give for networking? I'm currently a stay at home father with two kids, but they'll be in school full time in the next two years. And I'm looking to return to work. I interact regularly with other moms at the library and play dates, but they seem to be on a different career track than I. Thanks. Really appreciate the show. Mike from Ottawa. Well, you're currently a stay at home dad. So you get a lot of play date time and interacting with other moms at the library and so on. Well, first identify what is your career track going to be? So define that. What do you want to do when you jump back into the workplace, then find ways to interact with people who are on that same path. I go to book signings. I go to business breakfast. I go to luncheons. You may want to get involved in a local chamber of commerce or rotary club. I mean, do those things and do those now. So you are interacting with people who are in the workplace. And those are things you ought to be able to do. Even if you're a stay at home dad, I mean, if you, well, you say, let's see if your kids are not yet in school, that may be tough to do some of those, but you got to figure out even the online forums. I mean, get involved in networking groups, biznic, other things. You can get involved in 48days.net, our business networking community. So you identify with other people who are doing what you want to do. You know, start making those connections now. So you, I mean, this is, this goes back to the basic principle. You find people who are performing at the level which you want to perform and find ways to spend time with them. Well, the next question is kind of similar. Jared says, it's been said, if you want to be rich, hang around rich people. How do I find rich people to hang around? What kind of places can I go to meet rich people without a membership of some kind? This comes from Young, Youngsville, North Carolina. Well, I've had a lot of follow-up to some comments I've made recently about how rich people think and how poor people think. And if you want to be rich, you need to be spending time with them. Now I've always, now, now I don't just, you know, I don't hang around with people who are snobbish, but there are a lot of people who are wealthy that are probably living next door. And you don't know that you ought to read the book, Thomas Stanley's book on the millionaire next door and recognize how a lot of people wealthy, how a lot of wealthy people live very simply. They're not in mansions and driving Ferraris. They're driving Fords and live in a $150,000 house. So don't underestimate the wealth that some people have. Now there's no magic way to figure that out, but if you're talking to people interacting with them, you'll be surprised how many people have extraordinary wealth who are not living high on the hog, so to speak. But if you want to hang around people who are doing really well, you'll be going to things where those kind of people are going to go I and mean, go to concerts and you might join the rotary club rotary club historically has been you know high level professionals go to bni business network international other kind of networking groups so you start to identify 
top achievers. I mean, I go to speakers groups. I'm this Saturday. I'm speaking to the national speakers association, um, regional meeting here in Nashville, but those will be people who are high level speakers. They're out there highly paid as speakers. I have the opportunity to speak to them on Saturday, but that, that puts me in contact with a whole lot of other people that I probably don't know yet, but I'm looking forward to making those acquaintances. So I, I'm not, you know, I'm not living out of hotels and airports, but I interact with a lot of people who are successful. Hey, here's one of the things that I do. Yesterday I had lunch at the legends club now, the Legends Club is the country club on the Vanderbilt Legends Golf Course. It's a very prestigious golf course. It's where Vince Gill has his tournaments, and there are all kinds of, you know, Greg Norman tournaments and things that, that happen there. I'm not a golfer. I am not a golfer at all. Zero zilch. But I am a member so that I have lunches there two or three times a week at the Legends now, yesterday I talked to uh, Daryl Waltrip's wife and Daryl is in there probably four days a week. I mean, he's often in there. So, you know, I have a chance to see him and a whole lot of other people. I won't keep dropping names, but a whole lot of people who are people who have done very well. Now, here's the bottom line. You may think, well, yeah, that's easy for you to say. You're a member of some fancy country club. that costs $50,000 a year. No, it doesn't cost anything. I pay zero. I pay zero. I have a card and a membership number where I can walk in get a table at this fine country club and I pay for my sandwich, you know, $6.95 or whatever it is. I mean, it's very inexpensive food at the country club and all I do is just have a dining membership. It costs me zero. Joanne goes there whenever she wants to. We meet people there. It's quiet. It's a great setting. It's never crowded. It's easy to get in. You know, we know the people there. I had in my book release party there, but it costs nothing. It's just a matter of intentionally going there instead of going to O'Charlie's. And you can do things like that. So you do interact with people who are, who are doing really well. Well, let me move to this question. And again, we may not get past this one. Dan from Madison, Wisconsin says, Dan, as quest as Christians, as questions, as Christians, when our income increases dramatically, should our lifestyle scale with that increase? Now you can get a picture of that. So if somebody is working a ten dollar an hour job, they're renting an apartment, they're driving that Ford. But what if all of a sudden what well, let's just say that you write a best selling book? And all of a sudden you make a million dollars. Should you then buy a million dollar house and get at least a Mercedes to reflect your increased income? Not at all. Well, let me go on. He, he has, he has more to this question. Dan, I just finished your 48 days book. I've been listening to your podcast for a few months now. My current income level is on par with the average American. And I'm trying to think more like, the financial rich, as you recently covered. One question I had was, how do you feel about the idea that as your income grows, so does the cost of your lifestyle? I hear many of your listeners talk about getting well-paying jobs, 100,000 plus, and I don't know if they're just giving more and maintaining their previous lifestyle, or if everyone is upgrading to Mercedes and $500,000 homes. 
I try not to begrudge them for their success, but I still question if the extra money they make just goes to more expensive stuff. All right, this is a this is a really powerful question that I think we all ought to address. Now, we know the American model is to live beyond our means. When you go and apply for a mortgage, they're going to tell you the absolute maximum that you could qualify for based on everything you've got going, based on your work, your spouse's work, everything you've got. If you really are tight, you can qualify for a $450,000 home or whatever it may be. And that's what most people do. I think there has to come a point where we identify what kind of lifestyle we're called to live. And that may have very little to do with what our income is. If we just keep increasing our lifestyle and our consumption, every time our income goes up, we keep ourselves usually in very vulnerable positions, usually heavily laden with debt. I mean, the person who, who makes a million dollars, they go out and buy a million dollar house. I mean, I, I, well, I have a neighbor who came into $2 million dollars. He is so leveraged on that $2 million that if there were a blimp in anything, he'd go down in 30 days because he stretched so much. Now, let me just give you an example. And again, I usually am pretty transparent. When we bought the house that we're in, we went through the normal process, you know, went to get pre-qualified and they said, boom, you can buy this kind of house. And I said, well, that's fine. But Joanna and I certainly don't need that kind of a house. And they're like, well, what do you mean? That's what everybody does. You, you get the maximum house you can. A house is a good investment. I said, well, that's absurd for us. There are two people. Our children are grown. We would not need anything like that. So we bought a house that was very much in line with what I thought was reasonable for us. We wanted something that was kind of in the country, but not too far out. Something that was really peaceful something that would be a good environment for us as authors, something that was kind of like an old farm style house on about five acres. That's exactly what we got. But now here's what also happened about four years after we moved into that, we had become friends with neighbors all around us and the neighbor right directly behind us had another five acres with property and they decided they were going to move. We had talked to them and said, if you decide that you want to leave here, would you please talk to us before you talk to a realtor? They did. We bought their property instantly. That is where the sanctuary now is that I talk about. The converted barn where we have guest quarters. We have all of our conferences here. I have my offices back here. Would we have been able to do that? Now, we didn't buy this as you know, to rent it out, we bought this just to add on to our property. Would I have been able to do that if I had maxed out when we bought our property originally? No, I would have had my hands tied. But we had all kinds of flexibility because we weren't that leveraged. We hadn't buried ourselves in our mortgage. But this idea of what kind of lifestyle we choose is something that is very individualized. Now, as a Christian, you ask as a Christian, is it always, are we all called to simplicity, suffering, and poverty? Now, there's a real move out there right now 
that we ought, ought to go to in that direction. No matter what we what we have, we ought to give it all away. I mean, David Platt, you read Radical, he talks about that. Francis Chan, Crazy Love, talks about that. I mean, if you read Shane Claiborne, Irresistible Revolution, they're all talking about living the simplistic, minimalistic life as Christians. That's what we're called to do. Well, are we all called to the same thing in any area of our Christianity? Is there a cookie cutter, one size fits all? Is it really okay to want more, not just so that we can give more, but so that we can enjoy more personally. Let me have you listen to this, this old clip from Fiddle on the Roof while I collect my thoughts. Would it spoil God's eternal plan if you were a wealthy man? Well, I think we ought to continue. I think that the issue of stewardship comes up in this. I talk to people who say, gee, I'm 45 years old. I've made all the money I'll ever need. I'm going to just stop and just kick back. And I'm saying, you got to be kidding me. I need to be you on judgment day when you stand in front of God and say, well, you gave me the skills to make a lot of money, but I just buried that under the rug when I had enough for my own needs. And I just sat back and just did nothing. God is, God's going to say, you got to be kidding me. You're like the guy with one talent. I gave you something that you could use and you didn't use it effectively. I think if somebody has the ability to make money, they have the responsibility to make money. When I see people who have money, have proven their ability to make money, and all of a sudden they're called to be a, a missionary. And so they give everything away, and 30 months later, 30 days later, they're holding their hand out saying, Will you give me money? Because now I'm a missionary. I'm like, What's up with your own ability to create income? What did you do with that skill that God gave you? Why did you throw that away? And now are asking for me to give you money. Use that skill to fund whatever God is calling you to do. What if God wants to what what if God wants to sanctify you through generosity and understanding prosperity? There's a video clip that really deals with this and it's between Mark Driscoll who pastors, let's see, he pastors Mars Hill in Seattle and Francis Chan. So just Google Mark Driscoll D R I S C O L L and Francis Chan there's a 15 minute video where Francis Chan is talking about, you know, he's given up everything, you know, wants to live in absolute abject poverty. That's what he thinks God calling us to do. And Mark Driscoll is saying, what if God wants to sanctify you through generosity and prosperity? Now here's the deal. And again, we're in a theological area here and I'm certainly don't claim to be an expert there. I've, I've dealt with my own demons in this area, having been raised in poverty and in a theology 
that really said money is dangerous. We're better off not to have any. And yet I've come to understand things somewhat differently and have been uh, blessed with some opportunities along the way in doing what I think is good stewardship of what gifts God has given me. I mean, I had an idea just the other day that I intend to implement this year that I think will create extraordinary income, you know, beyond what I already have. Am I going to just ignore that? No, if that's an idea that I have that I think I can do ethically, I'm going to do it. Yes, I intend to be a good steward of whatever that brings in, but I think there are just as many problems in a poverty theology as there in an, as there are in a prosperity theology. You can live simply and still be stingy and hateful. And I see a lot of people who are poor and they're greedy and self-centered and narcissistic and spiteful and hateful. And I see a lot of people who are extremely rich and they're generous, kind and loving and certainly examples of what we want to look for in Christianity. So this is not a matter of one size fits all. It's a matter of you individually. If you have the talent and the ability to generate income, then I think you need to do that and use it effectively. Does that mean that you just need to scale up your income so that you are now a high consumptive lifestyle with where it costs you $20,000 a month just to maintain your lifestyle? No, I think that's questionable. Uh, can you enjoy nice things? Can you travel? Can you treat other people to trips and to cars and houses as you wish or write a check for a hospital? Yeah, you know, that, that that's to me a more desirable position to be in. So I'm certainly not going to fault that. Golly, great question. Great question. As always, well, I hope to see you involved in the 48days.net community where we carry on these kind of conversations every day, hundreds of times, conversations going on at any given time. Hey, I commend you on the things you're doing to make this the best year of your life, as I'm sure you're confident it will be as we continue to find or create work that is meaningful, fulfilling, purposeful, and profitable.